Ranges um, just in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, just north of the CBD. Um, it's where rich people like to live and where um, uh, lowly part-time pastors try to survive. And, um, and it's, a, it's a very affluent part of Brisbane, uh, so there's some complications there with trying to reach people for Christ. Um, you've heard of the organization Christians Against Poverty, uh, Christians Against Poverty. Uh, we're thinking of starting ones, Christians Against Prosperity, and, um, and for the, in, in Jesus' name. And um, so just to shed a bit more light around where, where we're from, this is my wife, Beck. We've been married 12 years last week, so that was pretty exciting to celebrate too. So uh, yeah. Why don't I pray for us as we come to God's Word, and then if you've got Luke 7 in front of you, that'll probably help you, or it, yeah, get it in front of you, that's probably better. Hold it in your hands, and that'll, that'll work for us. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to His Word. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the, the things we've been reflecting on already, uh, that You are a God who speaks to us in His Word. Our Father, that in Your grace, that Word that You speak is capable of doing uh, wonderful and miraculous things. You're a God who speaks life. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would speak life uh, into us again uh, this day as we come to feed on your word. We pray it through Christ, uh, the word, and we say amen. Amen. Well, I thought um, I heard at Toowoomba you guys are really fond of Shakespeare. Um, don't, don't respond. And um, so here's a Shakespearean list of niceties to kick us off this morning. Are you ready? Uh, woe, destruction. Ruin and decay. The worst is death, and death will have his day. Aren't you glad you invited me to come this morning? Well, in our day, it's not the done thing to go around quoting Shakespeare, whether you're in Toowoomba or anywhere, uh, as I've just done. And it's certainly not the done thing to address a group of people you don't know too well, me, um, with death as your opening topic, also as I've just done. And maybe for you, there was a saving grace in the fact that Shakespeare was the death of the sermon before we even got to the death bit anyway, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but I'm sure you've noticed this regardless. Death is about the darkest of taboo subjects uh, for us in this society. We all know it's there, but it's, it's such an ugly and unclean and horrif- horrifying thing. No one really wants to look at it. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to think about it. And so we try a bunch of different things. We try to befriend death, I think. And I think we do this by legalizing voluntary assisted suicide, euthanasia, and call it dying with dignity. That's legal in Victoria as of in a few months' time. But you can't make a friend out of death. You can't subject death to your own terms and will. It It just doesn't work. I think we try to diminish death by looking to the saving power of medicine and putting all of our trust in that. Uh, But at the end of the day, for all the marvels of modern medicine, they have no cure for death. It just doesn't exist. We try to sanitize death, I think, by hiding it behind the thick white walls of hospitals. We don't have to look at it. But inevitably, we all have to go behind those walls at some point. And see those sights and smell those smells. And it seems the reason we do these sorts of things is so we can get on with our lives as best as we can in the denial of death. The reality is death's a pretty scary idea. It's the last enemy to be destroyed and God's still yet to completely 
do away with it. And until he does, Shakespeare, love him or loathe him, he's right. Death will have his day. Or as the psalmist puts it, uh, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. That's you. I'm sorry. I know you're regretting it. Sorry, Samuel. That's you. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) That's God's wisdom about us. Now, I get that laboring the point about death isn't pleasant, uh, but I did figure that since I'll be halfway down the range in a couple of hours, um, certain liberties were afforded to me this morning that aren't normally the case at Grange, so I was just going to go for it and just sort of get us feeling very sober-minded about this theme of death. But in all seriousness, I don't know what's going on in the details of the life of this church or indeed in your life. Uh, For some of you already, this might be close to home. I'm aware of that. I'm trying to use humour, perhaps inappropriately, with something, and I hope I'm not coming across flippant about this deeply serious and grievous subject of death. And all that's to say, because what I'm hoping we'll go away with today is having seen this, that while in our fear of death, we might be in the habit of tiptoeing around it, trying not to wake it up, but God loves us too much to join us in that. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, he has broken into history, into humanity, into our problem of death, and with unparalleled grace and love, what he's done is spoken words that powerfully bring life. That's where we're going this morning. And that's what we see twice in that passage we just heard read, Luke 7, 1 to 17. First, you see death drawing scarily near, at the uh, centurion's house. It's not quite arrived. It's not quite taken the life of the servant yet, but it's coming scarily close. And whether a death's drawing near, as it is for that centurion, or whether it has come devastatingly close, like it has for the widow at Nain, um, the great truth is that Jesus doesn't run from it. He doesn't tiptoe, tiptoe around death as we do. He confronts it head on, and he simply opens his mouth. He only has to speak. And he defeats death by his word. So wherever you're at, I'm hoping that you'll come and bring your questions, your fears, and bring those with you now to these two scenes of death in Luke 7. And the first thing we're going to see is this amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. So it's Luke 7, 1 to 10, as death draws near, uh, what we're invited to come and see in God's word is this amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. And it comes from, of all people, this unlikely outsider. It comes from a centurion. So let's have a look again. Luke 7, verse 1. I'm going to keep pointing us back to the passage. Uh, Let's read God's word again together. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, that's the sermon on the plain, the bit before. When Jesus had finished saying all of that sermon in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus, sent some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal, the word literally to rescue his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with them. Here's their genuine plea. 
Yeah, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. So there's a super impressive Roman centurion. I like to think of Russell Crowe as Maximus Decimus Meridius with a big heart and deep pockets, but without the Aussie accent. This is that guy, and he is, he is an impressive man in society. He's an important leader in the military. He's an important figure in the, in the culture. He's caring to the Jewish people. He occupies. He cares for and respects dearly his slave with great affection. He's a seriously nice guy. He's a really nice guy. So yeah, he might be the, a commander in the, the enemy Roman army, but he's the guy on the other side you can't help but love, if you know what I mean. You know, he's a patron who's funding Capernaum Save the Synagogue Foundation. He's, he's setting up a little missions organization for the Jews. He's a nice dude. And so in his time of need, he says to the Jewish elders, to the Jewish leaders, guys, my, my beloved servant's on the brink of death. Now, you know, it's hopeless. I'm powerless to save him. But I've heard of this Jesus people are going on about. Last time he was here, you can read about that in Luke 4. Jesus turned up to Capernaum before this. And, well, last time Jesus was here, he healed every sick person in the town by the end of the day, simply by his touch. Now, I can't go to him. I'm an outsider, a Gentile. Jewish Jesus will want nothing to do with me. But you guys, you Jewish elders, you got to go. Ask him for me if he'll come. I love my servant, and he's my only hope for his life. And so the Jewish leaders go. They find Jesus. And I think what they say, they've sort of put some words in the centurion's mouth that don't seem to be there at this point in the passage. They say to Jesus, Jesus, there's a very important man, a very important guy we know, and he has a servant who's about to die. He's on the brink of death. And this man, oh man, he's a top bloke, Jesus. He is a big deal in our community. And don't say no straight away because... Yes, he is a Roman century, and technically he is an outsider, but, but he's really one of us, you know? Um, he even built our synagogue. We, you, Jesus, and we, we owe him one. We owe him one. This man deserves to have you come and save his servant. He's earned it. That's a big, big call. I have a younger brother, and he's doing great now. He's healthy, doing wonderfully, and uh, got married not all that long ago. It was a great day. But some years before, he contracted bacterial meningitis. Uh, it's, it's a deadly bacterial infection that goes for the brain. Um, so I drove up to my parents' place as soon as I heard. I, I got there late at night. I tried to get some sleep. I went to visit him early in the morning. And so my mum and I went into the ICU where he was in an induced coma. Uh, he was on the, the respirator, just like a science experiment sort of thing, tubes coming out everywhere. Uh, the whole works, that was all that was keeping him alive. It was horrible. Uh, many of you know what that looks like. I don't have to paint the picture. And anyway, this sight wasn't something that me nor my mum were used to seeing. And so we were stunned by just how desperate the whole thing felt. We, cried together and prayed together and we were helpless. We didn't know what to do. This person we loved so much was truly on the brink of death. There was, there was really nothing that we could do in our own power. And so we just left him in the, 
hands of our sovereign God. I only share that story to point out how bonkers the Jewish elders' (laughs) statement is. When they say, Jesus, this Roman centurion is so great, he's earned your rescuing, saving power for his servant. That would be like my mum and I pleading with Jesus in my brother's moment of need, Lord Jesus, we come to you on account of our good works and we ask for the healing we deserve. Amen. That would have been the most strangest Christian prayer ever. And so as far as I can tell, I think it's a pure act of grace that Jesus goes with them at all. In verse 6, do you see, he, he, is, he goes with them. Jesus goes with them. And he wasn't far from the house when the centurion sent friends this time, not more Jewish leaders. He sends friends who seem to speak accurately for him. And, uh, and they say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I don't deserve, they're speaking for the centurion, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So I take it the centurion still at a distance, at, at home, with his servant. And we see now the true state of where he's at. He knows that he doesn't deserve to have Jesus come and do this. So he tells his friends, look, you guys go. Tell Jesus, come no further. I'm completely unworthy and undeserving to have you come into my home. So just say the word wherever you are. And I know it will be done. For someone who's only heard about Jesus, an outsider, who's never met him in person or seen him in action, this centurion seems to get what a whole bunch of people on the inside don't. Jesus isn't some sort of, you know, traveling guru running a healings for hire service, you know. He's not Dr. Jesus Medicine Man. You can butter up into coming around to your place to take care of what you need taken care of. There's more going on with Jesus. There has to be. Of course there does. And I think the centurion, he he sort of figures it out, doesn't he? He says, well, just like he's been given authority to command the military forces under him, he's a centurion, he's got a hundred soldiers in his charge. Well, Jesus seems to function in a similar of this authoritative way. He too has been given authority by God to command the forces under him. In other words, Jesus doesn't have to show up to get the job done. Uh, his words have power. His words have authority. He just has to say the word and Jesus will be commanding the forces under his charge to ensure that this servant will be spared. Come no further, Jesus. Just say the word, and I know my servant will be rescued. Well, verse 9, when Jesus heard that coming from the friends of the centurion, he was amazed at him. I think this is, as far as I can tell, this is the only point in the Gospels when someone sort of blows Jesus away with their amazing faith. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel, not even from an insider. Then the man who'd been sent uh, returned to the house, 
and found the servant well. Which, for some strange reason, seems like a passing footnote to Luke. Like, what are you doing, man? Let's reflect on this. Let's celebrate this. But it doesn't seem to be the thing that he's focused on. But we, can, we want to stop and go, hold on a sec. Jesus has done it from a distance, not needing to lay hands on anybody. You know, as God in the flesh, he's rescued this servant from the brink of death by his awesome, powerful, life-saving word, yes. But in these verses, the, the big point of attention the thing that Luke wants us to re- reflect on, that not me, that this Luke, is the centurion's amazing faith. That's what takes center stage in this, in this first story. This is the point. As death draws near, check out this amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. I love how Jesus hears about the centurion's faith from his friends. And he goes, whoa, check out the amazing faith on on this outsider. And he calls the crowd to share in it and to do the same. And to be blown away by amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. The point is, we can learn something from this guy. We can learn something from this centurion. Because these are desperate times for him. Death is lurking around at his home. And his impressive resume won't save anyone. He knows he can't earn a rescue from Jesus because he built a church and is nice to God's people. None of us can buy or talk or work our way out of the problem of death. This centurion rightly understands his unworthiness. He understands who Jesus is. He's the one who speaks with authority to give life. Well... He seems to go, I can't invite that guy over to my place. I can't invite him into the house of death where death is knocking on the door. No way will Jesus come and deal with this ugly problem of death in person. I can't ask him to do that. For starters, everyone knows that Jews don't enter Gentile homes when everyone's healthy. (laughs) It's just, no, you don't do that. That's unclean territory. It's a no-go zone. And then add to that, inviting Jesus, the Son of God, to come over while death's hanging about. Death, the most unclean of unclean things, is just no way, the centurion says. Jesus, stop. I'm sorry I even asked. Just say the word where you are. It's it's that kind of sense. I've done the Psalms. It's Gentile home plus looming presence of death equals spiritual rubbish dump of filth. (laughs) This is a no-go zone for Jesus. So the centurion thinks. Jesus, Lord, stop. You're not coming around here. Just keep a safe distance and say the word from over there. Can you see how being an unworthy outsider surrounded by death has put this centurion at a distance from the life-saving rescue his household so desperately needs? This is a problem of distance. In essence, I think what the centurion's saying in this passage goes something like this. Jesus... You have to come and rescue my servant from death. Except Jesus, you can't come and rescue my servant from death. You're going to have to stay put and just say the word. And friends, that's amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. Now, I'm sure you noticed as I did that Luke doesn't tell us what that word is. Just say the word. 
The guy is healed. What, what was, what's, what's the word? <laughs> what are you doing? You muppet? Tell me what the word is, you know. What, what did Jesus say? And we don't know. We're not told. And do you feel as well, my, my spidey senses sort of get going when you start reading the gospel narratives, and there's a sense here for me where you feel as though the centurion might have stopped Jesus short, because he, he was going, he was on his way. You know, would he have carried on into the house is a question for me. You know, I mean, how close to death is Jesus prepared to go? And then what about when it's too late? What about when it's not just that death is knocking on the door of a house, but what what about when death has come and entered the home and has taken a victim? What about when it's too late? What could Jesus possibly do then? Well, if you've got those questions too, I invite you to keep reading with me into this very next chunk. Uh, Luke 7, verse 11. Let's have a look again. I think the answers are here. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Two large crowds, there's lots of eyewitnesses here, is what Luke is saying. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, And he said, don't cry. I assume most of you aren't complete strangers to funerals. Uh, Most of us won't be unfamiliar with that horrible, gut-wrenching feeling of pain because of the heaviness of death that come across our lives. I, I think we all probably know something of what this widow is experiencing. I guess it's for every Christian to find out that Paul wasn't trying to be poetic in 1 Corinthians 15. Death really is the last enemy. And it just needs to be destroyed, you know? It's in its full effect here in all its horror. Death turns wives into widows, don't you know? Death turns mothers into mourners. The scene here of what we've just read is this is utter despair in the Gospels. Jesus is about to walk into a town, and Luke tells us that as he gets near to the gate, a funeral kind of cuts him off, beats him to it. Death is coming right towards Jesus, and you can hear it. It has a soundtrack. It's the sound of a mother wailing and a large crowd of mourners crying. And you can see it. There's a a wrapped corpse of a man cut down in his youth, being carried on a flat board, paraded out of the city as mourners go with him. And Jesus' eyes rest on this grieving woman who needs him so badly. He sees that sort of gut-wrenching sight of a mom who's lost everything. First her husband, she's a widow, and now her only son. In this day and age, this is emotional, social, financial, utter despair. In, in Just in every conceivable way, this woman's in real trouble. And the way Luke tells the story here, I love it, because it sounds like you couldn't stop Jesus from stepping in if you tried. He sees her. 
and his heart goes out to her. It's like his, his heart's so burdened for her, it packs up, rips his chest open and just goes out there to go and... This is the love of Christ. That's the deepest compassion. You know that compassion that hurts? Uh, that's the word that Luke uses here to convey how Jesus is, is, is responding in this time. It really is like something's ripped his chest open so his heart can go out to this woman. This is that deepest compassion and the perfect compassion of Christ. And to this grieving widow at her only son's funeral, he says that which we should never say. This is not, this is not Christian counseling advice from Jesus of how to speak to someone who's just been confronted with death. We should never, ever say these words. And, unless you happen to be the reincarnation of Jesus, which you're not. <laughs> he says that which we should never say and that which he alone can say. He says to her, don't cry. Because he's going to do something about this. Verse 14. Then he went up and touched the coffin. He went up and touched that flat board that this dead corpse is lying on. He touches it. And those carrying it, Luke says, stood still. And we shouldn't be surprised why. You know, this is even worse than going into the house of a Roman centurion where death's only just possible. This is way worse because in a way that seems to say, stuff it, that's it, I'm putting a stop to this, Jesus extends out his hand and he willingly touches the uncleanness of death itself. He contaminates himself with the curse of death so that this funeral procession's shocked to a standstill. It's really cool. And so now here he is, it's Jesus And he's face-to-face, indirect contact with the horror of death. Have a look with me again, verse 14. He goes up, touches the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said in front of two large crowds of witnesses, remember, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That's a beautiful line from Luke of what a reunion that would have been. A grieving widow, a grieving mom, who's given back her boy from death. This is the saviour we worship. This is the kind of this is what it, this is the business he's into. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judah and the surrounding country. So don't, don't miss this, please. Though it's a totally scandalous and defiling thing to do, Jesus grabs hold of a death march, pulls it to a stop, speaks to a dead guy, tells him to get up. Life enters into this dead corpse. He sits up, begins to speak, and the people explain it the only way they know how, with words of praise directed at Jesus, that whatever it is that just happened in that moment, this is the case. God is here, and he is helping his people. They were all filled with awe. And praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Uh, 
We're not in Capernaum anymore, Toto. This is Nain. And in Nain, death has his day. But then so does Jesus. Even though death has come devastatingly close, Luke wants us to see in this second story here that there's amazing power in Jesus' life-giving word. The centurion teaches us something of what it is to have amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. Well, here, the the key focus, there's amazing power in Jesus' life-giving word. And I love how Luke draws our attention to this power of Jesus' word. Because don't you think it seems like a strange detail to tell us that the the young man, he's, he's restored to life, he sits up and he begins to speak? Seems pretty arbitrary. Why talk? You know, there's a million other things he could have done. Walked, asked for food like, you know, another girl does elsewhere. Like, what? Why speaking? I think it's this. I think it's because for us, it's life that brings forth speech. But you've got to see with Jesus, it, speech brings forth life. This is the power of Jesus' word. Dead people don't talk back unless Jesus is talking to them. And then they do. And in Christ, God is doing here what God has always done since Genesis 1, bringing life by his word. The people are right. God is here helping his people. They speak better than perhaps they know. This is the point. In Jesus, God himself takes on humanity. He looks upon our desperate and hopeless situation in death. And with a deep, hurting compassion, he says the life-giving words we've been waiting to hear since the, the centurion's place. You, dear woman, don't cry. You, dead man, get up. And both of those things happen. And so this mother, her son... All these witnesses agree, even when death has come devastatingly close, there's amazing power in Jesus' life-giving word. Now, Eastgate Bible Church, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but don't you enjoy hearing it all over again? I'm enjoying telling you and I'm thankful for the opportunity. Have you forgotten? God loves you. He's done something unimaginable to save you. He's come near to us in our deadly state. Why would he have anything to do with us in our death? This is the love of God, to come near to us in our deadly state. He sees our plight. He knows our pain. He's been moved with the deepest compassion. And just like with this young man at Nain, he's willingly reached out, taken upon himself our curse of unclean death, so that we get to hear his powerful words of life. There's an exchange going on here. In order for this young man to hear Jesus speak life, Jesus has to stop the death march by by incriminating himself and contaminating himself with unclean death. And God has done all of this for us in Christ. As you live your lives together looking upon Christ, you look upon the God and Savior who's reached out in compassion, condemned himself in order to speak you the words that bring life. If we need reminding of just how close to death Jesus' perfect compassion would take him, 
remember how Luke makes it known at the end of his book. Uh, Don't turn there, I've got it for us. Just have a listen to this. As Jesus is being led on his, his own death march out of a city to be crucified, a large number, just listen for the echoes here, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun had stopped shining. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he'd said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, by the way, the only other centurion that's mentioned in Luke's gospel, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. But all those who knew him, including the women who'd followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Friends, when Jesus says, get up and live, you need to know he's saying that he's prepared to go down and die. This is that love of God we were thinking about. That in order to speak those words of life we so desperately need to hear, Jesus has willingly extended out his hand to touch not just a coffin but a cross. To bear the curse of death in his body, to absorb that horrible thing. Even though he was left and he would, from those who followed him, they stood at a distance. Even though it meant he would be abandoned and even mocked. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus comes near to us to absorb our death for us and he's abandoned. Jesus pays the price of being silenced in death in order to speak life and he's mocked. There's a real tragedy at the cross. It's okay to to recognize it. There's a huge price for our Savior. Apart from one lone outsider, who, a centurion who stands at that cross and praises God for what he'd seen and heard. That's the one exception that we're told of here in Luke. This is the love of God, that Christ has come near to undeserving outsiders, to drain death's cup and to speak words of life. Now, like always, God's word calls for a response, doesn't it? And this morning, there's there's some questions that are are hanging heavy. And the first is this, are you unreservedly trusting in Jesus' life-saving word? Are you living by faith in the promise of that word in the gospel? That by Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he has removed our sin and conquered death. That by receiving his word, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Are you unreservedly trusting in Jesus' life-saving word? You hold it in your hands right now. 
it's there. It's there in front of you. As death drew near to the centurion's house, uh, religious insiders pointed to the centurion's amazing good works. Jesus pointed to one thing, the centurion's amazing faith in Jesus' life-saving word. That's all that counts, folks. (laughs) That's it. We might be good at tiptoeing around death, but we can't tiptoe around the gospel that saves. So how are you going to respond to this good news? Will you take a leaf out of the Roman centurion's book and wholeheartedly put your trust in Jesus' life-saving word? And if by God's grace he's brought you to do that already, have a look again at the response in verses 16 and 17. Do you see how the people respond here? They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Will you praise God that because of the life-giving words of Jesus, death will not have the last say over us? Will you praise God that we've been made alive with Christ as we hold fast to his word of life? Will you praise God and will you do it throughout Toowoomba and the surrounding region and do it proclaiming the good, this good news that overcomes death, the good news of Jesus' word, that that would be spread for Christ's glory. I leave you with those challenges, and I'm going to pray for us, you and me, uh, that we would hear God's word and respond appropriately. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come and thank you that you're a God who does speak words of life. We thank you, Father, that there, is a, that there is a wonderful promise in the gospel that Jesus has already spoken, a promise of life over all those who are his. We thank you that it is so freely and graciously offered, received only by faith and not by works. We're so thankful for your amazing grace to speak a word through your Son that would assure us of life. Father, as those who do live in a broken world where death is still yet to be completely done away with on the last day, Father, we pray that you would equip uh, us here, Eastgate Bible Church, the members of Grange Baptist Church. We pray for the churches across Toowoomba. For those who are faithful to your gospel and proclaiming this good news, we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of so many to come and to to find that wonderful hope that's being spoken to them. And, Father, we pray for your, your glorious gift of an amazing faith in the promise and the word of Jesus Christ for those people. Father, for a city like Toowoomba where... Uh, There are so many churches around, Father, we pray that you would not let your people fall into apathy about the call on our lives to spread this news throughout the region of what Christ has done to conquer death. Father, we're so thankful that he has spoken a word of life into our hearts. And we pray, Father, that we would respond appropriately. We pray for joy, Father. We pray for lives that celebrate this promise and this word.
We pray, Father, that it would be known in our salty living and in our bright lives that we have the joy of abundant life because Jesus has spoken into our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would make this known through us for your glory and for the sake of, for the sake of Christ, that his kingdom would reign more and more in the hearts of the people of Toowoomba and of Grange. And we pray, Father, that you would do this through us as those who have been so transformed that we would live lives that truly scream, we are no longer dead, we are alive. And it's all because of what Jesus has done by his powerful word. We pray these things through Christ, our Savior. Amen.